Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, the last of three special editions of Little Atoms for the 2016 Welcome Book Prize. Coming up in the last of our three shows for the 2016 Welcome Book Prize are interviews with shortlisted authors Steve Silberman and Sarah Moss. The prize winner will be announced at a ceremony on the evening of Monday the 25th of April. Thanks again to Chris, Alice and Fiona at FMCM Associates for arranging all of these interviews. Steve Silberman is an award-winning investigative reporter and has covered science and cultural affairs for Wired and other national magazines for more than 20 years. His writing has appeared in The New Yorker, Time, Nature and Salon. And Steve is the author of the New York Times bestseller Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism and How to Think Smarter About People Who Think Differently, which has already won the 2015 Samuel Johnson Prize for Nonfiction and is now shortlisted for the 2016 Welcome Book Prize. Steve, thanks for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you so much, Neil. It's great to be here. Give me a brief description of what the book is about. Sure. It's uh, the first in-depth history of the evolution of the autism diagnosis. And instead of looking at autism exclusively through a medical lens or through the lens of being the parent of an autistic child, it looks at uh, the evolution of autism through a social lens and examines how big social forces like World War II ended up having a huge effect on uh, autistic people and their families. So why did you want to write this? When did it first come to your attention? Well, the first article that I ever wrote about autism, I wrote in 2001 for Wired Magazine. It was an article called The Geek Syndrome. And uh, it's a slightly amusing story how I ended up writing that article. Do you mind if I tell it? Please do. Okay, great. In 2000, I was on a boat in Alaska with more than 100 computer programmers. As we were pulling out of port in Vancouver, my fellow passengers started pulling like Ethernet routers and whatnot out of their luggage to upgrade the ship's communication systems. By midweek, they had asked the captain to give them a tour of the engine room. So they were uh, basically a subculture of people who wanted to understand how things worked and to help make them work better. And the star of the cruise was a guy named Larry Wall, who invented a programming language that is so useful. Programmers call it the duct tape of the Internet. And that language is called Perl. And before we uh, got back into port in Vancouver, I asked Larry if I could interview him at home. And he said, yeah, sure. By the way, we have a profoundly autistic daughter. 
And at that point, like most people, I believe that autism was very, very rare. I believe that it was so rare that the chances of me ever meeting an autistic person in real life were very, very slim. And virtually the only example that I had of autism in the media was Rain Man, the hit movie with Dustin Hoffman. So I went to interview Larry. His daughter wasn't there. I noticed that he had made some interesting adaptations to the sensory environment of his house, like he had swapped out the loud buzzer on his clothes dryer for a little light bulb that would light up silently. But I didn't yet know enough about autism to relate that to his daughter's condition. So anyway, the uh, interview went fine. I wrote the article about the cruise. Uh, about six months later, I was writing about another technologically buried family in Silicon Valley. And I asked the sister-in-law of the woman I was profiling if I could come interview her at home. And she said, yeah, sure. By the way, we have an autistic daughter. And I thought, wow, that's kind of a funny coincidence. So I was mentioning uh, this coincidence to a friend of mine in a cafe in San Francisco where I live. And all of a sudden, the woman at the next table blurted out, oh, my God, do you realize what's going on? And I said, what's going on? And she said, I'm a special education teacher in Silicon Valley. There's an epidemic of autism in Silicon Valley. Something terrible is happening to our children. So I suddenly, you know, I got a chill. And uh, because I was a science writer, I also got the desire to figure out if she was correct. So I wrote an article about autism in high-tech communities that was one of the first mainstream press articles about that called The Geek Syndrome. And the funny thing about that article was that I got email about it for 10 years afterwards, almost every week. And these emails, you know, usually articles are forgotten overnight, practically. These emails were very intense. They were uh, from parents of autistic children saying that their kids were about to so-called age out of services so they would no longer be they would no longer be given the very meager amount of services that are available to families. I got emails from autistic people themselves who said I was told when I was young that I was a genius, but I've never been able to have a job because I can't get through a face-to-face -face interview without fidgeting or looking away. Uh, and I got emails from people who figured out that they're relatives were autistic. And so many of the emails were about very real, basic, day-to-day -day problems in living. Meanwhile, the whole world was becoming obsessed with autism, but it was becoming obsessed with a very different conversation about autism, which was, do vaccines cause autism? Because Andrew Wakefield, the now discredited British gastroenterologist, had published his paper and created a big panic about the safety of vaccines. So Every article in the media about autism, whether it was about vaccines or not, the comments section would be dominated by comments about vaccines. And so I started to wonder, why is it that the undeniably startling rise in autism diagnoses that began in the 1990s, which Andrew Wakefield explained by saying that it was cause of vaccines, why is it that even papers of record like the New York Times were unable to come up with anything better than saying that the reason for that rise was, well, perhaps it had something to do with diagnostic criteria, but it's really a mystery. It's a mystery. It's a baffling enigma. It's a puzzle. You know? And so I started to become very annoyed with this concept that, well, why don't we know more about it? So I started to go through autism history and realized that basically someone had to figure out the primary reason for the rise in diagnoses. And so that was, you know, about six years ago. I thought the book would take me about a year and a half to write, but in part because of the really groundbreaking nature of some of the things I figured out, uh, it took me five years to write.
And so I'm very happy that it's found an audience because it was my life for five years. It's a condition that's only relatively recently been identified. And we'll come to that in a moment at that point. But before then, before the 40s, how would somebody who would have had autism, because obviously people have always had it, how would they have been treated? Well, you know, first of all, I want to say, yes, it may be obvious to you and I and to anyone who actually looks at history and looks at the writings of, say, Jay Langdon Down, the father of Down syndrome, who, who wrote very beautiful and heartbreaking descriptions of, of autism in the 19th century. But for people who believe it's a product of the modern era and caused by vaccines or pollution, they actually claim that autism did not exist before the 1930s. But anyway, the first character that you meet in my book was a scientist, really, a, in a sense, a pioneer of being a scientist, a guy named Henry Cavendish who made all sorts of discoveries in physics and mathematics and chemistry in the uh, late 19th century. And his friends knew that he was very odd. He did not like to make eye contact. He moved strangely. His voice had odd intonations. He had profound social anxiety. Even if he went to a dinner for the Royal Society members that he wanted to go to, he would become frozen with uh, anxiety on the stoop and basically had to wait for someone to come in or go out so that he could sort of force himself through the doorway. He communicated with his household staff using notes left on a table. He took the same walk every day near Clapham Common, where he lived, the same route every day for years. He wore the same outfit every day. When it wore out, he instructed his tailor to create an identical outfit. He ate the same meal, a uh, leg of mutton. So he was he was autistic. And it was Oliver Sacks, actually, uh, the great neurologist and writer who pointed that out. And his friends had no idea what to make of his eccentricities. They called him a man with fascinating peculiarities. They thought that he seemed to lack certain uh, emotional responses that one might expect in social situations. They knew he was brilliant because he was one of the greatest scientists of his or any era, but they did not know what to make of his eccentricities. And the truth of the matter is, if his father had not left him a considerable estate, he probably would have ended up in Bedlam, being given cold baths or something. But because his father gave him this money, he was able to turn his estate in Clapham Common into a sort of autistic playground for making discoveries discoveries in science. Now, we're going to talk about the point where autism was sort of first described. You tell the story of that in the book, and it's really the story of two men, um, Hans Asperger and a guy called Leo Kanner, and their very different approaches, both to their diagnosis, to their patient. Tell us about those two men. Well, the main, I would say the main you know, sort of historical scoop in my book is that the official timeline of autism's discovery, as it is reiterated in thousands of texts textbooks and Wikipedia and websites is incorrect. And the incorrect version of history is that autism was discovered in 1943 by Leo Connor. It looks like Canner, but it's pronounced Connor. And he was a child psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. And in 1943, he published a paper describing 11 patients. And as sort of a footnote to that discovery, this guy Hans Asperger published a paper in 1944 describing four patients. And Connor is really considered the father of the diagnosis, and that was the big discovery. Um, and it was considered coincidental that the two doctors wrote papers a year apart. It was one of the great coincidences of 20th century medicine. Anyway, I discovered that that's completely wrong, and that it was not a coincidence at all. This is what actually happened. 
Autism, and in fact, what we now call the autism spectrum, was discovered in the mid-1930s by Hans Asperger and his colleagues at the University of Vienna. They had a clinic there that was a very, very progressive place for what we now call special education. They gave the kids courses in history and math. Asperger would even read poetry to the children. There was art on the walls. They had dance classes and uh, music classes, and it was really a wonderful place. I found a bunch of papers that had been overlooked or forgotten that described the daily life and the daily schedule in that clinic. And Asperger and his colleagues developed a concept that one of them eventually called the autistic continuum, which was a very, very broad condition that lasts lifelong, that requires support from parents, teachers, and the community for the entire lifespan. And Asperger knew that even a kid who seemed very, very disabled when young could grow up to become say, an assistant professor of astronomy, like one of his former patients, who uh, was very, very autistic, but he basically badgered his teachers into giving him advanced tutoring in math, which they thought he would not be capable of. He did it. He went to university, where he detected an error in one of Isaac Newton's proofs, and then went on to become an assistant professor of astronomy. So Asperger had this very, very broad and inclusive conception of autism. But there was a very big problem, which was, in 1938, the Nazis marched in into Vienna to annex Austria for the German fatherland. And Asperger's bosses, if they weren't Nazis already, became fervent Nazis. In fact, his mentor loved Hitler. And uh, the Nazis launched a secret extermination program against disabled children that was literally the practice run for the Holocaust against the Jews. And so they figured out ways of committing mass murder by practicing on disabled children like the children in Asperger's clinic. And so Asperger was in a very tight spot, as were his Jewish colleagues. And two of them were named George Frankel, his chief diagnostician, and Annie Weiss, a young psychologist. They had to leave or die in a concentration camp. And they were rescued by Leo Connor in Baltimore. Leo Connor heroically rescued more than 100 Jewish clinicians before the darkness finally descended in Austria. And so he brought them over. And then in 1938, when Leo Connor's first autistic patient, a guy named Donald Triplett, came to the clinic at Johns Hopkins, Leo Connor didn't know what to make of him, but George Frankel certainly did, because by then he had seen more than 100 autistic children. So it was really George Frankel that helped Leo Connor develop his conception of autism. But then, unfortunately, Connor was unable to find a job for Frankel and Weiss. They moved on elsewhere and pretty much disappeared into obscurity, alas. But Connor went on to theorize that autism was very rare, which was different than Asperger. Asperger thought it was very common. That it was very narrowly defined and monolithic, which was different than Asperger, who you know saw it as what we now call a spectrum. And worst of all, Connor blamed parents He blamed cold, unaffectionate refrigerator parents, as he called them, uh, for causing autism in their children. And that did a number of terrible things from making the recommended treatment for autism institutionalization. So children were put on psych wards, basically, where they were subjected to all manner of brutal treatments. And it made parents very uh, hesitant to mention that they had an autistic child because the medical experts that they trusted blamed them for causing the condition in their children by not loving them enough. So it rendered autistic people and their families invisible for two generations. And what fixed it all was that a woman named Lorna Wing, a cognitive psychiatrist in London, was asked by a public health official in the 1970s to 
basically find all the autistic kids in a suburb of London called Camberwell. And she went out looking for them. She did find a very small number of children who fit Leo Connor's sort of artificially narrow criteria, but she found a much larger number of children who Connor would not have predicted existed. And she was like, what is this? What's going on? Why has no one noticed these children before? Then she came across a reference to Hans Asperger, read his paper, and was like, this is it. And she went behind the scenes, broadened the diagnostic criteria so that they were fitting the clinical reality better and so that more families like hers, because she had an autistic daughter as well, were able to get services. And the number of diagnoses started going up just as she hoped, because that meant that more families were getting services. I'm Ben Goldacre, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. We now talk about this autistic spectrum, or in fact, it's even now described as an autistic spectrum disorder. There's no longer really a classification, for instance, of like Asperger's syndrome. What does that spectrum actually mean then? Well, one thing to reflect upon is that autistic people are more different from each other than non-autistic people are, in that you can be autistic and be completely unable to talk and completely unable to take care of your needs in daily life. You can also be autistic, and you can be the CTO of a successful Silicon Valley company. You simply have a hard time engaging in reciprocal social interactions. So the spectrum, as it were, of human behavior that falls under autism is incredibly broad. And that's one of the things that makes it kind of hard to talk about. Because obviously, if someone is you know, working as a very successful Silicon Valley executive, they don't want to be called disordered, you know, and that, and that's a word that I avoid using myself in part because I don't claim to know what the order of the universe is supposed to be. Um, but, uh, you know, for parents of a child who cannot be toilet trained and who is very self-injurious, it obviously looks like a disorder. So it's a very, very complex and subtle question. I am not personally so upset about the label of Asperger's syndrome being uh, taken out of the DSM because the DSM, the so-called Bible of psychiatry, is really about reimbursement more than it is about diagnosis. And having a single umbrella condition that people can be diagnosed with provides easier and more equitable access to services for more people. But the Asperger's syndrome diagnosis, which was introduced by Lorna Wing, in part because the word autism had become so stigmatized because of Leo Connor's theory of refrigerator parenting, that parents were more willing to accept a diagnosis of something that didn't have the word autism in it, like Asperger's syndrome. So, you know, I'm not so upset about the change in terminology. What's important is that families get the services they need. Let's go back to that idea of there being in the sort of 70s and 80s an epidemic of diagnosis suddenly many more people are being diagnosed and that's obviously a lot to do with this idea of the spectrum that suddenly a lot more people come within the range of that and of course then there are people certainly the MMR people who think that there are environmental factors but at the beginning of the show you mentioned this idea of very specifically the epidemic in Silicon Valley are there other factors that made it more likely in Silicon Valley? Well, you know, Simon Baron Cohen at Cambridge has a theory that's known as assortative mating, which is basically that people who have similar traits that 
come from their genetics, are given social opportunities in communities like Silicon Valley that they would never have had in history before. And they're also given more social opportunities because of the advent of the internet. So basically, people who are uncomfortable in face-to-face interactions can now get to know each other online. And so the internet has become sort of like a native communication medium for people with autistic traits. And so arguably, in very specialized communities like Silicon Valley, it could be that people with autistic traits who are often attracted to each other, as Temple Grandin, uh, perhaps the most famous autistic person in the world, has said, she said, you know, minds that function on the same wavelength are often attracted to each other. So it could be that people carrying the genes for autism meet in specialized communities like Silicon Valley, have kids, and then the genetics get sort of concentrated in the kids. Another This is not normally considered an environmental factor, but another possible thing that I think might be contributing to a small rise in diagnoses is that parents are waiting until they're older, basically, to have kids. Uh, My mom had me when she was 18, and that was not unusual. But now, you know, for instance, my sister had her first child in her 40s, and that's not unusual either. And so couples are basically waiting uh, longer to have children. And there is solid research that demonstrates that the children of older parents have a higher risk of autism. So there may be these tiny, true, you know, what are called secular increases in autism caused by things like assortative mating in older parents. But, you know, in terms of vaccines, that's not happening because that's actually been checked out so much. But let's say that you believe that there is a genetic subset of children who are susceptible to some environmental factor. What you would need to do to figure out what's really going on is to remove all the statistical noise caused by the broadening of the diagnosis, the rapid increase in public awareness of autism after parents were no longer blamed for it so they could actually talk to each other, after children were no longer automatically put in institutions, um, they became much more visible. So all of those factors create tremendous amount of statistical noise if you are looking for a subset of children who are genetically susceptible to some factor or other. So what my book does is finally removes all that statistical noise. And if someone wants to go pursue their belief that there is an environmental cause, then do it. But you can't claim that there is an autism tsunami caused by X. And in fact, there was a very, very important study that was done in the UK by a guy named Terry Bruga in 2011. And he determined that the prevalence of autism among adults is exactly the same as it is among children. So where is that tsunami that one hears so much about? Terry Bruga was unable to find it. And in the U.S. here, we're sort of behind England in many ways in autism. So we need to do a prevalent study of autism among adults to determine if there is any increase whatsoever or if it's just an epidemic of recognition. You mentioned in the story at the beginning about what got you interested, this coincidence of two autistic daughters. Now, I was always under the impression that autism was much more prevalent in males. And I think that's quite a widespread myth. And it is a myth, isn't it? Well, I wouldn't exactly call it a myth just yet, because there could be some genetic factors involved in that. But I'll tell you this. We are learning that autism is very underestimated and underdiagnosed among women. And it's because it presents differently in women. And women, you know, are socialized differently than men. Men are sort of rewarded for being aggressive and assertive and like little miniature Donald Trumps. 
Uh, and it's often the aggression and the assertiveness that calls an autistic child to the attention of authorities, whereas women are trained to be more demure and to script their commentary to match those of the people around them. So women tend to sort of fade into the background. But there was just a, an amazing article in Psychology Today recently about one of the leading autism experts in the world, a guy named Kevin Palfrey at the Yale Child Study Center. He missed the signs of autism in his own daughter, even though he does that for a living. That's how invisible autistic women are. And he also mentioned that he's been doing a lot of brain scans. And he said he confessed to the reporter, basically everything we thought we knew about autism in the brain is only true of men. So I think we're still just beginning a line of research that will determine if it truly is four times as common in men as women, which has been the oft-repeated line for decades now. The book is titled Neurotribes. What does Neurotribes itself mean? That's a word I made up. And if you want to be postmodern about it, I never use the term in the text uh, so that it can mean what people, you know, sort of a product of their collective impression of the book. But I can tell you what I was thinking about. Uh, the founder of Asperger's Clinic was a guy named Erwin Lazar, and he had apparently an uncanny ability to determine on the basis of a child's aptitudes and strengths what sort of occupation they might best fulfill in the future, and then that would help the clinic guide them towards that kind of occupation, that kind of education that they needed. So it was as if Erwin Lazar believed that humanity was organized into clans or tribes that were sort of destined for certain occupations. And so that, you know, suggested the word neurotribes to me. Tribes within humanity determined by aptitudes, strengths, and neurology. I wanted to talk in some ways about, if it's the right word, the benefits of being on the spectrum. And across this interview, you've mentioned a few ways in which people with autism have contributed, especially, you know, obviously on the tech side. What would a, I guess, a more accepting and like a truly neurodiverse world look like, do you think, if we had it? Well, just a couple of weeks ago, I attended an amazing event called the Autism at Work Summit, run by one of the largest software makers in the world, SAP. And they have committed to hiring hundreds of autistic programmers in the next coming years. And their program has already been so successful that they're expanding into seven countries. And what they do is, instead of forcing a potential autistic employee to uh, make a good impression in a face-to-face -face interview, they give them tasks that draw on traditional autistic interests and strengths of the autistic mind, like solving problems using Lego Mindstorm robots. And they get to know the person, so it's not just this diagnostic label that they see in front of them. They take the candidate out for baseball games and pizza nights. They build a support circle around the person so that they can learn how to work gracefully in a team and find out what kinds of accommodations they need in the workplace. And what the director of the program in the United States, Jose Velasco, who himself is the father of two autistic children, said to me was, this is not about charity. It's about creating profit and building value for our stockholders because tech employees are notoriously fickle and they sort of move from job to job. But SAP has found that autistic employees are incredibly loyal. And in fact, many of them had been unemployed for years before getting hired by SAP. That is one piece of the future that is really working out well. And I think as we determine what kinds of accommodations like 
sensory accommodations, you know, perhaps no buzzing fluorescent lights, offer written instructions as well as verbal instructions, don't expect an employee to make eye contact or to, you know, shake hands or whatever. You can actually envision what kinds of accommodations would create a better world for autistic people. Instead, what we've been doing is focusing only on causes and potential cures and all that. And it's as if we were saying, who cares about wheelchair ramps and disabled access to public buildings? Someday science will enable everyone to walk. You know, so it's time that we start changing our society so that people with various cognitive disabilities, not just autism, but also dyslexia and ADHD, uh, can make contributions that only they can make to our society. Just one more question then, Steve. What does the fact that NeuroTribes has been shortlisted for the Welcome Prize mean to you and for the book? I'm incredibly honoured because the other books that have been shortlisted and have won the Welcome Prize are profound gifts to humanity. So I'm actually shocked, delighted. <laughs> you know, it's wonderful. And same with the Samuel Johnson Prize, actually. One of the reasons why I'm so happy about being nominated in for the Welcome Prize and winning the Samuel Johnson Prize. My father was an English professor who used to carry me on his shoulders while reading James Joyce's Ulysses to me. And unfortunately, he is no longer around to see this, but I'm hoping I'm doing well in his eyes. So I've been talking to Steve Silberman, who's the author of Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism, and How to Think Smarter About People Who Think Differently, which you can buy now from Alan and Unwin Books. Steve, thanks so much for telling me about it. Thank you so much, Neil. It was great to be here. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
I'm Simon Ings, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Sarah Moss was educated at Oxford University and is currently an Associate Professor of Creative Writing at the University of Warwick. She is the author of three novels, Cold Earth, Night Waking, which was selected for the Fiction Uncovered Award in 2011, and Bodies of Light, which was shortlisted for the 2015 Welcome Book Prize. She spent 2009 and 2010 as a visiting lecturer at the University of Iceland and wrote an account of her time there in Names for the Sea, Strangers in Iceland, shortlisted for the RSO on Darty Prize in 2013. And Signs for Lost Children, Sarah's latest novel, has also been shortlisted for the Welcome Book Prize in this year, 2016. So, Sarah, welcome back. So last year we spoke about Bodies of Light in one of these programmes and that book told the story, among other things, of Ali Mobley and her struggle to qualify as one of the first female doctors. And if it's not too much of a, of a spoiler, that book ended with Ali marrying Tom Cavendish, an engineer. And it was, it was a happy ending and you could have left it there, couldn't you? <laughs> I suppose so, but... Yeah, I wanted I, mean, I wanted to give Ali happiness at the end. I'm also, in Night Waking as well, interested in what the happy ending looks like for a feminist. You know, is it a job? Is it a man? Is it both? Is it a man who lets you have a job? Is it a job that lets you have a man? Um, and I think that's something that British fiction has been worrying about really since Jane Eyre. You know, how do you write a feminist romance? What does it look like? So Signs for Lost Children continues the story of Ali. So what's it about? Signs for Lost Children is about Tom and Ali. It's a it's a narrative that goes back and forth. I had fun choreographing that. And Tom is now based in West Cornwall as a lighthouse engineer and is sent to Japan to build lighthouses, which did actually happen. A lot of the Japanese lighthouses in the late 19th century were built by British, mostly Scottish engineers. And meanwhile, Ali is finding her seat as a doctor in Cornwall, developing a particular interest in mental health, which was quite a new specialism in the late 19th century, uh, working at well, an invented Truro asylum, kind of loosely modelled on the Bodmin Asylum. Remind us again a little bit, first of all, who... Ali is, where she's come from? Ali is one of the, well, first or just about probably second generation of female doctors in the UK. She grew up in Manchester as the daughter of a campaigner for women's rights and a pre-life artist, was able to train and qualify as a doctor kind of five or ten years after the first woman in Britain had been able to do that. So as an adult who's recovering from a very difficult childhood, trying to move on from that and find ways of being sane and happy while also fulfilling her ambitions, her professional ambitions. And tell us something else about Tom. So where does Tom come from? Tom grew up in Yorkshire, um, fatherless, but with a mother who was very committed to making sure that he made something of himself. Trained as an engineer in Scotland, which is where most of the engineers did train in those days because Oxford and Cambridge weren't teaching anything much more useful than classics and theology. And then joined that generation of Victorian you know, middle-class young men who were able to find space and purpose and ambition in the empire or in the colonies. I mean, of course, Japan is neither of those things, but that movement away from Britain to find other spaces where class might be less of a constriction is certainly historically based. So he's in the process of transition as well. He's socially ascendant. Um, moving in spheres he doesn't recognise, even really when he's at home, and of course especially when he's in Japan. And Ali is also moving into uncomfortable alien spaces as she goes to work in hospitals that, however welcoming they're meant to be, were not set up for female staff and had no experience of accommodating them. And so they're both characters that are somehow 
although they're you know they've they've become successful, they're both somehow uncomfortable with the strictures of that sort of strict Victorian upbringing. So again, they seem like quite a perfect couple to have come together at the end of Bodies of Lie. So this book starts off with them together, but then very quickly they're separated. Yes. I was interested in those long Victorian separations, which happened to very many couples, you know, in the era before instant communications, even a letter from Japan takes six weeks. Those relationships take a writerly form because they're sustained by writing letters. So the relationship becomes almost a literary entity as they get further and further apart. And that would be tempting for any writer. That almost seems unimaginable now. But at that point, I mean, there's a point in the book where Tom sort of says, actually, it only takes six weeks nowadays. Yeah, it had been longer. I mean, the six weeks was fairly miraculous. So Tom heads off to Japan to build lighthouses. And sort of while he's there, he becomes sort of fascinated with, with the life, with Japanese art and culture. Let's talk about that side of the book, first of all. The Well, let's talk about how you researched the Japanese elements of it, because you travelled there a few times, didn't you? I did. That was fun. Yeah, I went twice, did quite long trips. The first one, just kind of feeling my way, scraping around, working out what it was like for me to be in Japan and what I was interested in, how to access it. And the second time, I went back with a much more specific agenda and went to arts and crafts workshops, textile factories, talked to ceramicists people who were making the kinds of things that Tom would have been buying. It was enormous fun, slightly challenging for me as well, because travelling alone in Japan in winter is interesting, but it was good. So you've already mentioned that Japan's obviously not part of the British Empire. So let's describe for us what that Japan that Tom travels to was like at that time. It was just opening up, really, in the 1870s. It had been well, officially, or in story anyway, closed for a couple of hundred years, uh, very much turned inwards, avoiding contact with other nations. So the you know the extent to which that really held is questionable. Of course, it's an island nation. You can't really stop people coming by boat. And the Japanese government of the 1870s was recognising that there was a lot to gain from industrialisation and trade with the wider world, but also a lot to lose. I mean, they had the example of India before them. What happens if you let a European nation come in and take over? So they wanted European expertise, particularly in science and technology, very quickly. But they didn't want the power dynamic that tended to come with that in Singapore, to some extent, bits of China, in India, in the countries of empire. So it was a very clever solution. They brought in the rising generation of British engineers and doctors, mostly, um, paid them very highly, much more than people like that would have been able to earn in Britain, to stay there for usually a period of two to five years, at the end of which they had to leave. And during that period, they were to build a kind of industrial infrastructure and also teach at Japanese universities so that by the time they left, there was a generation of young Japanese men who were able to take over and keep going. So it was very clever. It was very strategic and it worked. And it meant that there were a lot of young men with something to prove, with something to gain, young men who weren't going to be handed life on a plate if they stayed in their home countries, working very hard in Japan as guests of the government and that's also important because it really affects the way the power dynamic works. It wasn't like India, they weren't there to run the place and show the natives how to do it. They were there as guests of the government on very specific terms and conditions being paid to do exactly what they were being told to do. So that's quite interesting in relation to Ali's experience in a hospital because Tom is, in some ways he's feminized, he's out of place, he doesn't understand what's going on, he's not there from a position of power. He's a foreigner who's always kind of thinking, trying to work out what's expected, what's required, what he's supposed to be doing. 
And that, I think, is very much the experience of a lot of women in male-dominated environments, particularly workplaces. So Tom is not, I mean, he's not a particularly heroic man anyway. He's not very invested in his own masculinity. But some of what's taken away from him as a lone stranger in Japan is that authority that a man could, and probably to some extent still can, occupy in public space in Europe. I'm Gaia Vince, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. You've talked about how Japan was opening up and how they had that the strategy of a certain amount of engagement with the rest of the world. But this is also a period of time where Japan itself, Japanese art and culture, is incredibly fashionable. Yes, and being adapted for that fashion, of course. Um, I mean, a lot of what was exported wouldn't have been made or sold domestically. And that was one of the things that interested me, the ideas of authenticity and national identity that we tend to cling to are nearly always fictional. And that's one of the things Tom has to recognise, that the beauty of these objects may be independent of their history. They're objects for a new and international world um, coming out of a kind of global taste. In Bodies of Light, we saw Ali, as she was growing up, being institutionalised herself and treated for hysteria and treated very badly in her treatment. And now, having qualified as a doctor, she chooses to go and work in an asylum for women. So why? Yes. It's partly a turn against her mother who wanted her to go and work with the poor on the streets and work in public health and viewed mental illness as self-indulgent and neurotic and not real illness. Uh, And certainly saw a hierarchy between physical and mental ailment, where physical ailment is real and mental ailment is somehow imaginary or less serious. And, you know, we might recognise that point of view in today's NHS. So Ali is partly, I think, finding a way of rebelling while not rebelling. She's still a doctor. She's still using her qualifications. She's still a professional woman. She's still helping poorer women. But she's doing it in a sphere that would not have been recognisable to her mother. And she finds that the patients are being treated quite badly by some of the staff. What would have been the conditions for a, a women's asylum at that point? I think they weren't terrible. I mean, I didn't mean to write a book about abuse and violence. The nurses who worked in asylums were paid less and worked harder than the nurses who worked elsewhere. And you know, this is all an era before the NHS, so there's no basic standard of anything much. I don't think most Victorian asylums were places of deliberate abuse or violence or harm. I think the intentions were usually therapeutic. In any situation, we you know, we know where you give a small group of people absolute power over another group of people, that power gets abused, and that certainly happened. But certainly by the 1870s, there was not much use of physical restraint, partly because there were many means of pharmacological restraint. There was a growing interest in understanding what was going on and in the possibility of curing mental illness, which hadn't really been considered possible earlier than that. So they were, I mean, Victorian asylums were massively overcrowded and massively underfunded. And of course, that always takes its toll on the inmates and the staff. But they weren't, they weren't intended as places of harm. Now, Ali's qualified as a doctor. She's one of the first female doctors that in itself obviously makes her stand out as something of an outsider and she's also obviously she has this sort of underlying mental fragility as well from being institutionalized when she was younger but her position there as working at the asylum is as like a sort of curiosity as well isn't it to some extent, yes, just because it was so unusual. I mean, nobody was used to the idea that a woman might have the title doctor, for example. It's parallel to Tom's position. In some ways, it's functioning in an environment 
that's not set up for your gender and not quite able to recognise you. The idea of a female doctor was really very strange and exotic. And of course, she's alone as well. So she's been basically her and Tom have, have separated. So she's embarking on what she thought was going to be a married life and is now a life on her own, taking the responsibilities of this job and the pressures that come from that. Yeah, I mean, they they know when they marry that Tom's going to go away, but he's going to earn a lot of money. And when he comes back, they're both going to be better off. This happened a lot in Victorian marriages. I mean, a lot of the men who went to India went alone. The, the rich ones would take their wives, but the poorer ones didn't. Anybody in the armed forces would have been away for long periods. You know, missionaries would have been away for long periods. It's not that they've separated, it's just that they're apart for a while. Yeah, she feels married, she is married. But still, there's an aspect of having to get used to a life on your own, which brings in a different type of pressure as well, as well as the pressures that are going on at work. And as I said, I wanted to sort of bring in the idea that basically her underlying mental fragility is going gonna, is gonna to come to the fore. Yes, though I don't think Ali's all that fragile. I think given what she's done and what she's... I think she's responding sanely to an insane situation. You should be brought up by a mother who keeps telling you that you're mad and fragile and hysterical will make anybody behave like that. To have your own sanity questioned as a child would undermine anybody's confidence in their own interpretation of the world. People who have read Bodies of Light will remember Ali's mother, Elizabeth, and her treatment of her and Elizabeth haunts Ali through this novel as well. I want to talk about going back to Tom and there's a sort of parallel talking about Japanese folk stories and their treatment of madness there in terms of like these possessed foxes and stuff. Tell me something about that. I found that very interesting. Um, The bit that really fascinated me was an account by a German doctor of a hospital in Tokyo in the 1890s where German psychiatrists were using Freudian principles to treat women who were suffering from fox possession. It's one of those lovely collisions between a a very modern and a very old world. But I think a lot of the symptoms of fox possession would be entirely recognisable to us now. Um, It would include a woman's aggression towards or inability to care for a baby, um, despondency, sleeplessness. Um, lack of interest in often pretty boring domestic tasks. You can see entirely why people would lack interest, but the failure to conform to social norms and expectations, and it's mostly but not exclusively women. So very much the kind of behaviour that in Victorian Britain might land you in an asylum if you were poor, being read in a completely different but equally coherent way. So Signs for Lost Children and Bodies of Light before it, and indeed before that, the first book of this sort of loose trilogy, Night Waking, and also your other writing is concerned in the main, one of the main themes of it is this sort of idea of the position of women in the domestic sphere, both in the past and now. That's the theme of all of those books, but do you sort of see that as like a overarching project in itself? Um, no, I don't think so. I think it's always been part of the work of the British novel to think quite hard about gender and family and money. I mean, yeah, from Austen and before her, Bernie onwards. I'm interested in that project. My next book, actually, which will be out in July, is about a family in which it's the man who stays at home and looks after the kids. So it's not it's not exclusively an interest in women's lives. It's just an interest in gender and sexuality and power and how we negotiate those. Are we finished with the Mobileys now? I did I did sort of very tentatively say this was a loose trilogy, but will we see them again? I don't know. Not in the next book, anyway. Maybe not the one after that. Just to finish off then, Sarah, what does it mean to you to be shortlisted yet again for the Welcome Prize? 
Oh, well, it's lovely. Of course, it's a, it's a nice thing to be shortlisted for, and it's great to have those conversations with other writers about literature and medicine. So I've been talking to Sarah Moss. We've been talking about her latest novel, which is Signs for Lost Children, which is out now from Granta. Sarah, thanks so much for sharing it with me. Thank you. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunch website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.